We, this morning, are in Matthew's Gospel. This is perhaps one of my favorite... This is probably the most... This has been the most life-giving passage to me in the Scriptures, in all of the Scriptures, in the last three years, at least. It's Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. You might know the invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Learn from me, take my yoke upon you... Uh, for I'm gentle and lowly, humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what this text speaks to us. Um, last week, though, we considered what Jesus does with our doubts. John the Baptist came to, sent some disciples to Jesus saying, hey, should, are you the one or should we look for another one? And so last week, Jesus, uh, the scriptures We considered what Jesus does with our doubts. This week, Jesus will tell us who he is with our liabilities and with our needs. So when you consider what it means to begin and to build a relationship, an ongoing relationship with God, our very first question should be, who is he? We don't start with what he does. We start with who is he, who a person is, is almost always the driver behind what a person does. Not always, um, but most always. That is consistent. Jesus will talk about this in chapter 12 and also in chapter 15, about um, how a a good tree produces good fruit. And he'll also talk about how what is in the heart overflows and proceeds out of our mouths. And he's getting at the reality of our inside life will always show up in our outside life. There's coffee in this cup right here. If you come up and knock it over, will juice come out? Will milk come out? Will water come out? No, coffee will come out. Why? Because what's in the cup is what comes out of the cup in the same way what's in the heart is what flows out of our lives. So what's in us comes out of us, whether it's joy, whether it's greed, whether it's kindness, whether it's anger, whether it's generosity or compassion, you get the point. What's inside comes out. Now, as we wrapped up last week, Jesus began taking aim. It was a hard teaching. Towards the end, he began taking aim at folks who who, who consistently remained tone deaf to his teaching, unwilling to change. And his his, his judgments will justifiably, they'll come down on those who shrug him off and remain proud and remain unwilling to come to him which is the invitation that we're going to see in the text this morning, come to me. And so I want to actually spend a significant amount of time in chapter, in verses 25 through 27 this morning, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not because I want more to lay before you verses 28, 29, and 30 this morning. So I'm, I'm undecided right now. I've been wrestling with this over the course of the weekend. Like, do I actually return to verses 27 or 25, 26, and 27? to tease those a little bit out in a few weeks, and I might. I'm just letting you know, I'm genuinely asking the Spirit to to just speak and to lead me and us in this. So our focus this morning, though, is going to be on Jesus's invitation. But before I get to that, I do want to just acknowledge what's happening in verses 25, 26, and 27. Now, um, here's the big idea. Here's the thrust of the morning. I want to lay it before you. The only one who is competent to give us rest from our fear, guilt, and shame is Jesus, comma, 
and he invites us to come. He invites us to himself. He's the only one who's competent to deliver us from our fear, guilt, and shame. But let's start first, before we get there, let's start up in verse 25. This is what the scriptures say. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the things that he just had been talking about, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He'll go on to say, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So first kind of mini point here, uh, verses 25 and 26, the will of our Father is challenging. That's why I want to dive back into this, and I have that desire. And if, if I don't, for some reason, I want you to. Jesus understands that at a very, very deep level, even the ones who will not come to him are still being governed by our Father. That somehow even the unbelief, even the opposition, even the obstinance of people will serve our Father's plan. Notice that Jesus says, I thank you. He's actually praying a prayer of thanks. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. We should, we should understand that who Jesus means is the wise and understanding there are the religious leaders of the day. He's hidden kingdom in some ways from them. And he's actually revealed his kingdom to little children or the little ones or the ones who get easily passed over. Now, Frederick Dale Bruner, a commentator on Matthew Nails, that somehow and somewhere behind and above a discouraging world stands a poised father, completely in control and utterly unfrustrated. So here's our reminder of just that this morning. We have got to remember that humans are not the final arbiters of human history. Your politicians will not save you. They can never save you. Your thought leaders, your influences, your artists, your poets, your intellects, your academics cannot save you. Your pastors cannot save you. Your spouses cannot save you. Your children cannot save you. Even if you raise them to do all the right things and say all of the right things, God himself is the final arbiter of human history. Now, there's an invitation, there's good news in verse 27, where Jesus says here, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So he's talking about his, uh, the Father has granted him specific and unique authority, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Eugene Peterson says it well, there is a unique father-son operation happening here, coming out of father and son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does. So in his mercy, God must reveal himself to us, which he does only through Jesus Christ. Controversial, yes. Untrue, no. Jesus is very exclusive. And he is not unkind or cruel. Jesus offers weary people rest, and all who receive his invitation and come are all who truly know him. All who truly know him are all who truly come. How do we know who he chooses to reveal himself to? They're the ones who come. They're the ones who come. 
I know that probably raises questions for you. These are raising issues of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and all of the, de the debate that goes with that, which is why I want to settle in and spend a bit more time on it. And I have heard from you. I've heard your prayers. I've had conversations with you. I've, I've, I've not heard your private prayers. I've heard you when you pray in public. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've seen many of your lives, and I, and I, and I'm, I have an understanding of... of your thought processes, many of you, and, and how you relate to God. And uh, maybe this is coming out of who I am and what I feel like I most need, but I also feel like I'm hearing this from us regularly and seeing it, it in us regularly. We need to know and be confronted with the heart of Christ, and we need to understand how we come to experience his heart, meaning how we come to experience him. So that's where I want to go this morning with you. You'll notice here in verse 28, he says, come to me. All who labor or who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus first comes to us offering an invitation to come to him, and he offers a promise for those who do. In his invitation, there's also a division here too. Remember, earlier in uh, chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus said that people would actually divide over him. He said, don't think that I've come to bring peace. I haven't. I've actually come to bring a sword and to divide fathers from sons and family members from one another. And so what we came to understand was that even close family relationships would be set against each other and he would be the reason why. And I want us to consider this morning how this invitation also brings division. So Jesus' invitation to those who are weary. If you're reading in the ESV, it says labor. I, I'll talk about that in a little bit. I don't think that's a great translation. All the, strong trans, the other strong translations, NIV, CSB, New King James, they all say weary there instead of labor. I'll get to that though. Um, Jesus' invitation is for those who are weary and for those who are weighed down with heavy burdens. His invitation is for the person who needs rest. He says, come to me all. If that's you, he's saying, come to me. And for those whose pride and self-reliance keep them at an arm's distance, Jesus has a different invitation. Still an invitation, but the invitation is repent. You need to change your mind about who I am. And if you change your mind about who I am, something begins to happen in the heart and something will eventually happen in your way of life, but it starts in the mind. It starts, repentance starts with a change of mind. But for those whose pride and self-reliance does not, they still have it, but the pride and the self-reliance does not keep them from crossing the threshold of repentance. Jesus answers that he is gentle and that he is humble in heart. So this is what it means for us. When we come with our frailty, when we come with our weaknesses, we, you, I, will not be turned away and we will not be shamed. God will not turn you away and God will not shame you. And we need to know this. He is not soft and he is not cowardly in the way that we might define soft and cowardly. He's utterly realistic in how he judges proud hearts and how he responds to humble hearts. The condition of our heart is perhaps God's chief consideration when it comes to you and I. The condition of our heart 
is the most important thing about you and I. The posture of our heart is the most important thing about us in relation to our relationship with God. The condition, the posture of our heart. So the Old Testament scriptures talk about this often. Well before Jesus' arrival, the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they began to foretell that their days are coming, Israel, when God will give you, the people of God, when God will give you a new heart. He's going to remove your heart of stone and he's going to give you a heart of flesh. What that means is he's gonna take away your hardness towards him. He's gonna take away some of your hardness towards the people around you and towards his way of life. And he's going to replace that with a kind of openness and softness toward him and toward his way. He's going to write his law, the law of liberty, the law of good news, the law of the gospel on his people's hearts. And we read in the Proverbs as well, in Proverbs 4.23, there's a young man who is, he's considering, he's grappling with the value of wisdom. And he is grappling with his, struggling with his way of life, the direction of his life. And the writer of the Proverbs says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep it, protect it, guard it, nourish it, feed it. Keep it with all vigilance. Why? Because for from the heart flow the well, it's the, it's the wellspring, it's the spring of our whole life. What is in us, what's in our heart comes out of us. Jesus in just a few chapters in Matthew 15, he'll talk about how the heart is the factory and the mouth is the showroom of everything that the heart produces. I used to own a little um, tile manufacturing business in Hayden. And if there, were, if there were flaws in the workshop or flaws in our processes, they always came out in the final product on the wall or going to the customer. Jesus would say in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth, what comes out of our mouths proceeds from our hearts. And it's this, it's in here, it's in here. It's what's in the cup that actually defiles a person. He says, uh, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's these things that defile a person. There's an author, many of you have read his book. His name is Dane Ortland. Um, Show of hands, how many of you have this book? How many of you have read this book? This book is at no cost. I didn't mean to shame you there, I just did. Uh, Jesus does not shame you. I might, Jesus won't. Um, this book, I'm sorry, this book called Gentle and Lowly is on a cart at the, at the exit doors right in the back of this room and it's at no cost to you. We want you to have a copy. It is a wonderful, wonderful treatise on the heart of Jesus Christ. The subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And while I'm at it, this little book, Church Elders, there's 30 of them on that cart. I want you to take them if you're wrestling with what an elder, what a pastor is. There are gifts to you as you're just wrestling with, um, with the, the, the affirmation of these men that I've brought before you this morning. Dane Ortland, the author of Gentle and Lowly here, here's how he puts it. He says, one thing to get straight right from the start is when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether in the Old Testament or in the New, it's not speaking of our emotional life only, but of the, cent the central animating center of all we do. So our heart is what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart in biblical terms is not part of who we are, but it's actually the center of who we are. Our heart is what defines us and what directs us. That is why Solomon tells us to keep the heart with all vigilance for from it flow the spring of life. 
he goes on to say, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding of heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified of heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, then his surprising claim is he is gentle and lowly, gentle and humble in heart. So good. Now, if Jesus says his heart is gentle, what does that mean for us? Here's what I mean about that. If, if I tell you my heart is gentle, I don't actually experience my gentle heart. You're the one who has to experience my gentle heart, right? If you tell me your heart is gentle, you don't experience it. I have to come and interact with you in a way that might produce something in you to experience your gentle heart. So the invitation is there for us. Jesus is inviting us, but we still have to test it. Ortland goes on to say this about Jesus in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus is not trigger happy. He is not harsh. He is not reactionary. He is not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger but open arms. Is this good news? It's incredibly good news. The posture most natural to him is not shaming like your pastor just did to you. It's open arms. Jesus will not break you or I when we come to him with our burdens. Jesus is gentle with wearied people. What does it mean that he's humble in heart? What does it mean that he's lowly in heart? Uh, a, a more natural way to read this to us would probably be humble in heart. So gentle is what we experience from him, but humble in heart is actually, he's speaking of his posture, his internal posture toward us. Here's what it means. It means that Jesus's heart, Jesus himself is utterly approachable. Remember, a person's heart is who the person is. Jesus in his very person, in his very heart, he is accessible. Now, in my life, I have not been regarded as a very accessible person. It just is what it is. Uh, I, I tend to have that RBF face and that furrowed brow and like people don't approach me. Um, maybe you, you do or you experience me differently, but I've just heard since childhood and well into adulthood that I'm not the most appro approachable or accessible person. But I love, love, love to be around people who are. Don't you? Think about a person who just, like, when you come into their presence, they just welcome you with joy and openness to you. Who, who is a person like that for you? Just name them in your, in your head, name them. How do, you, how do you feel when, how does it make you feel when they welcome you? Uh, a, a warm greeting warms the heart. There's nothing like a good warm greeting. Jesus is more open and accessible to you than that person who you just named. Here's why all of this feels so surprising. 
and foreign to me. Because Jesus is this welcoming when I come with all of my wearinesses is, 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 is. Because they're plural, almost always. When, uh, I, I don't, I, I mentioned this, I don't know why, what the ESV translators were doing with this verse, but I think they got it wrong. They said, come to me all you who labor. And like I said earlier, other really strong, reliable translations, they, they almost all translate it as weary. Now, when I think of weariness, come to me, you who are weary, I can almost feel it, like it's palpable. Like weariness is that moment when my legs feel heavy or when my eyes get heavy or when, when my heart is just weak or my emotional life is just taking a beating and all I want to do is give up or in. Like that is what weariness feels like. But when I think of labor, I don't necessarily feel it. Labor actually kind of lives as more, more like an idea or something I do instead of a reality that I feel deep in my soul. When you and I are at our lowest, when we're in the gutter, as we like to say it, when we're a hot mess, when we feel most like a liability, not like an asset, when we feel like a burden, when our pain is searing hot and it feels like our pain is so intense that if we even just share a little bit of our pain with somebody, it's gonna burn them. We feel like, get away from me. Nobody can be near me. I can't be around anybody. This is when Jesus offers this invitation. He says, you bring all of that vulnerability to me and I'll give you rest. I will not turn you away in shame. I will give you rest. And he invites us again with specific direction. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke is not a part of an egg. Well, it is, but not in this sense. A yoke is a piece of equipment that is intended to ease discomfort when carrying a burden or carrying a load. I've got a couple of pictures of yokes here. This is a large yoke. That loop on the bottom goes around an oxen or a piece of livestock's neck. That little ring that you see in the center will then tie off to a burden or a cart or a load or a plow behind them. And the two animals will shoulder it together. Ideally, they're carrying 50% of the weight rather than 100% of the weight being on one. This is not from Jesus's day, as you can tell, uh, it is, but it, it gives you kind of that picture of uh, some steers here carrying or pulling a wagon. So uh, it, I think it's just good for us to have this, this visual here. In, in the Old Testament, you can go ahead and leave it up. In the Old Testament, it symbolized, a yoke did, it symbolized obedience and the acceptance of responsibility. So the Old Testament, the, the rabbis in Jesus's day, they would often speak of their own disciples. They would urge their own disciples to take on this yoke of the law. But what is so ironic here is that under their guidance, and as people would imitate their way of life, the burden wasn't light. It was unbelievably heavy. 
And so Jesus would actually rebuke them in Matthew 23. And he'd say, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, meaning they have authority over the people. So if they teach you to do something out of the law, he says, do and observe whatever they tell you, but don't do the works they do. Don't follow their way of life. Do not imitate them. Why? Because they preach and they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to carry them. Now here is a question. When you think of the weary person, what does the weary person need? When you think of yourself when you're weary, what do you need? Do you need rest or do you need more work? Jesus offers rest, but he offers it through a yoke. If you're on a landscaping crew, it'd be like, hey, you look really tired. Go grab a shovel. It's kind of what it feels like. Here's what Bruner says, it's gold. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we, th- what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bury responsibilities. In the final analysis, realism sees that life is actually a succession of burdens. We can't get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means to develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. I agree with Bruner here on one hand that the, that the rest that Jesus offers us, it, it helps us to carry life in a more balanced way. Um, if you're uh, readers of Dallas Willard or you listen to John Mark Comer and Bridgetown and those guys, they, they teach about this often. I listen to those guys. I love those guys. I've learned a lot from them. So yes and amen to their teaching on this. And I think it's good for us to come to clarity about the kind of rest that Jesus offers here. He offers specific rest. Look at your Bibles. Come to me and I'll give you rest for your bodies. Come to me and I'll give you rest for your circumstances. Come to me and I'll give you rest for your relationships. Come to me and I'll give you rest for your way of life. Is that what the text says? No. The text says, come to me and I'll give you rest for what? Say it. Your souls. I want to cut through the nuance and I want to go straight to what I think is the heaviest burden on the human soul. Fear guilt, and shame, all of which are the rotten fruit of our sin and rebellion, our estrangement from God. One person calls them dreadful companions. Fear, guilt, and shame. They're dreadful companions. I think one reason that a biblical worldview is so compelling is because Scripture addresses these dreadful companions from the opening pages and then prescribes the answer to them. The opening pages of the scriptures are ultimate great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. They were the first to invite and to experience the dreadful companions. And since then, handed on to the human race from a person's earliest days, every one of us can contest. All of us have wrestled them down or tried and been wrestled down by them. Tim Challies says this, no sooner do Adam and Eve sin than they experience shame, symbolized in the sudden knowledge that they are naked and their desire to cover themselves. 
They experience fear as they run and hide from God, desperate to escape his gaze. They experience guilt knowing that they've gone from innocent to guilty in the eyes of God. Entire cultures reflect fear, guilt, and shame too, usually with a dominant forerunner at the front, but every culture has all three intermixed. So you've got fear-based cultures. Think of, uh, think of um, religions like voodoo or spiritism, right, where you've got shamans, you've got evil spirits, you've got people giving uh, curses and casting spells. You've got shame and honor cultures prevalent in the Middle East and in Asia. You've got guilt and innocent cultures, which we're very familiar with, like here in the United States. You are innocent until you are proven guilty, right? Although I would argue, don't have time for this, but we're actually, I think, transitioning into a shame-honor culture. In his invitation, uh, Jesus is not speaking to the person who is weary from a hard day's work or whose schedule is out of balance. He's speaking to the person who's wearied from the work of trying to relieve fear, guilt, and shame. That's why he offers rest for the soul. Our schedules, our relationships, our finances, our loves, our control, our hobbies, our addiction, and more are often dictated by a deep inner desire to soothe ourselves and to relieve the impossible, the impossibly heavy burden that fear, guilt, and shame impose on us. The way to get Jesus' way of life isn't to stop doing it our way and to begin doing life his way. That's actually legalism disguised in a new set of clothes. A new wearying work. It just feels fresh for a while until it isn't anymore. The way to experience is the, the way that we experience Jesus' way of life can only through, come through giving and entrusting our hearts to him. Relenting. Bringing our true selves, our whole selves before him. So my argument is that when Jesus is coming, is telling us to come to him and to find rest for our souls, he's calling us first not to come to him in order to change our actions, but to change our operating system that we might come to him and offer without a dot of fine print our hearts, our fears that minimize him, our guiltiness that wounds him, our shamefulness that grieves him. He's calling us to come to him so that our guilt, fear, and shame might be lifted from our backs, out of our souls, and carried by him. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ is the God of good news who comes to us to live as one of us and to do the work of liberating our souls for us. Chalice goes on and he says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, addresses our shame by telling us repeatedly how Christ was shamed on our behalf to restore our what? Honor. Making us full-fledged family members. The gospel addresses fear by telling us how Christ has defeated every power and how he even gives his power now, the spirit of God, to us. And the gospel addresses guilt by assuring us that Christ took our guilt upon himself so that he could give us his innocence. The gospel removes shame, it removes fear, and it removes guilt. It restores honor, it restores power, it restores innocence. 
The gospel speaks to every person in every culture and addresses their every need. So, why then would we hesitate to come? If he's gentle with us and humble in heart, why then would we hesitate to come? Remember the big idea this morning. The only one who is competent to give us rest from our fear, guilt, and shame is Jesus, and he invites us to come to him. So for you and I, this means our will is involved here. One of the healthiest, maybe the healthiest thing we can decide to do is humble ourselves and cultivate willingness to bring ourselves to Jesus repeatedly. You know how when you repeatedly come to somebody else and they're like, hey, enough, enough. We do this to, to our, with our kids all the time. That is not Jesus' posture, as hard as it is to believe. That is not his posture to us. He's not like, enough, stop. He does not respond to you in that way. He keeps beckoning you and I to come. He's human, but not human on that level. The God-man receives us and draws us We resist coming to him with our liabilities because we're hardwired to work and to earn our acceptance. And so because our weariness and our burdens are a burden to us, we believe that they've got to be a burden to Jesus, but he's altogether different. We demand that in order to be accepted, we must show ourselves worthy, but that's the message that actually hates the gospel because it contradicts it. The gospel at its root at its root, it shouts from the rooftops that we are so screwed up that God himself had to come and die in order to liberate us. And it pleases Jesus immensely every time you and I, hot messes that we are, come to him to receive that. He, come, he, he calls us to come to him and he calls us to get under his yoke. It's one thing to say that we're humble and it's another thing to lower ourselves to the ground and show our need. We've got to exchange the yoke that we carry for an altogether different piece of equipment. He calls us to come to him. He calls us to get under his yoke. He calls us to learn from him, to watch him and to follow him. We've got, church, we've got to stay rooted in the scriptures, especially on this topic as it relates, rooted in the gospels, because these are the pages, these are the places where we see Jesus living we, we come to the gospels cultivating eyes to see and wills that want to imitate Jesus. Come to me, get under my yoke, learn from me, trust me. So the question for us is, will we take Jesus at his word and pour our weary hearts into his full heart? You know those moments when you pour out your heart to a friend and they accept you and affirm you and you recognize that you're safe with them? Jesus is a better friend than they are to you and I in every one of those moments. And finally, we rest on him and we rejoice in him. He offers rest for our souls. Every time that I come to Jesus, even though I still may be weary in my body, weary in my schedule, weary in my circumstances, weary in my relationships, weary in my heart, weary in my gut, weary wherever he carries me. He carries you. He carries all of us. And we can trust him. Our work is to come to him. Pray with me. Father, Thank you 
thank you, thank you that this is the reality of the gospel, that you've, desi- you've designed good news for your people to be proclaimed continually throughout the ages. And it's come to us and it's coming to us regularly. We are rehearsing the good news that in our weariness, your arms are open, your fingers aren't pointed. Would you humble us for those in the room who need the humbling, that need the laying down of pride and self-reliance? Would you, uh, would you show them in their spirit, in their mind, would you persuade them that these words in the scriptures in Matthew 11 can be trusted and an entire life practice can be built on them? Would you assure the person who already believes this that that is still true and will never change? Lord, we love you. We love you. We love you. Amen.